Welcome to Concussion Stories, a Life Yana podcast series filled with hope. I'm here to let you know that you are not alone in your concussion recovery. I'm Melanie, and I spent more than six years experimenting, training, and learning in order to heal myself from a very bad case of post-concussion syndrome. And today, I feel better than ever before. In Concussion Stories, we dig deep while discussing hopeful stories of recovery, as well as the hard stuff in the messy middle. If you're struggling to focus, be sure to take a break. Down in the description of each episode, you can find a table of contents in case you want to skip ahead. Let's dive right in. Today, we'll be meeting Dr. Sessler. As the founder of the Concussion Care Center of Virginia, and a passionate doctor. He is well-trained when it comes to post-concussion rehabilitation. During this and the next Concussion Stories episode with him, you'll recognize his familiarity with our experiences, and after listening to him, you'll realize that you are not doing anything wrong when it comes to feeling the way you feel. Dr. Sassler is used to seeing cases like ours, and that makes his story like a sound bath of recognition. Let's get started. So how are you doing? I'm good. Busy yes. day, but was looking forward to this as a something different. Mm. Because what does a busy day look like for you? A busy day? Um, it looks like staying busy with taking care of patients. Yeah, I have uh, looked, of course, through your, um, uh, what is it, positions, you would say, right? Um, and, and there are so many things that you're doing that I was, that was why I asked, what does your day look like? Because it looks like you have so much to do already. How can you say patience, but you're just doing it all. My wife has no conception of what I juggle. I try to express it, but I juggle so much that it's kind of, um, difficult to put in words, but I I enjoy, I enjoy juggling. So for what that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the saying? Variety is the spice of life. Right. Yeah. But so, I, I have interests outside of medicine as well. So it's what not, are your interests? I'm, I'm, what are my other interests? Mm-hmm. Um, my kids. I enjoy gardening. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy music. And I dabble in magic. Tell me more. <laughs> that's, that's probably enough. Oh, it is enough. Like you, you practice magic. Can I say tricks? Uh-huh. Yeah? yeah. Is that what you do? That's wonderful. I'm, I mean, when I see younger patients, it's a yeah. nice way to break the ice and uh, make them mm. feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the younger patients are an excuse for a very fun hobby, probably. There you right? Go. Yeah. yeah, I got you. <laughs> okay, I understand. It's also a distraction at uh, when I go to conferences and go to dinner with people. It's a nice little thing to do hmm. to keep people on their toes and amused. Interesting. Yeah, there we have another uh, another quote, another saying. I think it's I don't know. I don't know who said it, but life is far too important to be taken seriously. So. I don't know who said that either, but I have heard it. It's, it fits you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I think it does. And, and I tend to be the eternal optimist. So, okay. Re- a realist, but an optimist. 
Hmm. How does that um, translate to seeing, seeing patients for you? Ooh, I knew I was setting myself up for that one. Um, well, I, how I think it translates is that I try to be factual with them. I don't sugarcoat stuff. So that's the realist part. But hmm. I also feel that all too often patients are viewed with blinders on, going back to my blinders, um, and that there's inadequate differential diagnosis, which results in suboptimal treatment and suboptimal outcomes as a result. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that all too often, even people two, three, five, ten years post-injury, if I see them for the first time, there's generally something that I have to offer that hasn't been offered previously, hasn't been adequately discussed or explored. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I generally am not one to say just because you're two, three years post, that's it. There's nothing further we can do. No. So but that that has been how it translates. Yes, that's a that's a very good um um uh, very helpful translation also practically for all patients. Very um, true, by the way for headache patients. Mm -hmm. I, we can get into that when we talk about headache, but just briefly, I see many patients who've seen many, many different clinicians before seeing me who are told it's chronic post-traumatic headache and you have to live with it. And in fact, that's not accurate ultimately. No, no. Yeah, that was the thing that I wanted to say because uh, you just mentioned that if patients have had have had their symptoms for years already, you were not one to say, okay, that's it. There's no recovery possible. But in the field for years and years, it has been the norm that after two years or so, no further recovery would be possible, right? Yeah, so a, you, term, I don't know if you use it in Europe or in um, your country, but in America, there's a term MMI, Maximum Medical Improvement. It's an acronym. And it basically means that point at which no further change in impairment is going to occur. And mm. I hate it because it's extremely poorly defined. It comes out of the workers' compensation laws, yeah. not yeah. medical in origin. And it all too often is misused and serves as an obstacle to people getting looked at more closely to determine if in fact there is something that can be done further. Yes. And what we both just discussed still happens all the time. People yeah. say, oh, you're three years post, there's not much I can offer. And they don't take it any further than that. No, that's true. So you have been the one who, um, who have been going with your own vision and possibly probably also your own experience because you saw probably that improvement was still possible later on um while uh, a lot of the medical community was saying this is impossible right i mean some of that admittedly comes with experience not just with me but with any clinician who sees enough of this patient population mm -hmm. you know after you've seen three that's a very different place to be than seeing three thousand yeah 
So some of that, you know, just translates from seeing larger numbers of patients and having that experience under your belt and following patients for years. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started doing this, I had no conception in terms of actual experience, what happens to people 10, 20 plus years post injuries, particularly no. severe brain injuries and how much improvement you could potentially see over time. Well, you've probably heard of these um, stories where people who were supposedly vegetative, they could have been actually minimally conscious. I'm going to turn this off because it keeps popping up. Um, recover after many years. Have you heard those stories? Yes. Okay. So those are outliers, but they occur and they say something about the brain's potential for long-term neuroplastic change mm-hmm. that, you know, when I first started doing this, which is many more years ago than I wish to admit, um, we didn't know that. I mean, people just accepted that if you were a year more it wasn't going to change no oh it's really interesting when you when you start talking about these kind of examples and you call them outliers they are outliers um but still um one if they haven't been researched enough how do we know how much of an outlier they are and that's the same. The same is, for example, with post-concussion recovery. That's something no, that I'm is... not disagreeing at all. What no. I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, it sheds a light on a topic that we don't know enough about, and it provides implications about what might be possible. Exactly. If, if we figured out what the mechanisms were, for example, of why those people recovered, and another group that many years out didn't recover. No. What, What's the commonality? What are the disparities exactly. that might implicate treatment courses mm-hmm. that affect recovery? Yeah, and that's that's the interesting thing because then um, because um, uh, until it's fully researched and they are still outliers. And for example, me myself, I'm often called implicitly an outlier because I fully recovered from post-concussion syndrome six and a half years after injury. And what I then get a lot is like, you were lucky um, uh, or you're um, displaying false hope. And uh, those are things that that are, I'm sorry. I hate that term. How is hope false? Well, okay. As a doctor, of course, you have uh, made an oath to help people and to give them honest information about their situation, right? And that is, I think, where optimists and realists are separated. <laughs> that you can get, you can't take hope away from people. That's what um, Dr. Uh, Ramon Diaz Arestia. He, I, I spoke with. Yes, you know Emma. He, he, this, these are his words. So you cannot take hope away from people. All of my guests on concussion stories always agree with me. Otherwise, they can be on the podcast. But um, still, if you are to communicate honestly with a patient their situation, a lot of doctors feel that you shouldn't angle towards giving too much hope if there isn't any reason to hope. But that's the thing that I believe, and that's why I wanted to talk about these outliers as well. Um, If there's no hope at all, 
So if you don't feel like there's any perspective, any possibility of improvement or of recovery, then there is no way because your mind is just not open to the possibility. That was the thing that for me made my recovery possible in the end, because in the beginning, I felt that there was no hope because doctors had told me repeatedly. And once I decided that I would recover, suddenly there's at least the potential that I could recover. Right. If as a physician, you felt you had nothing to offer a patient, then I think ethically you need to say, I don't think there's anything I can offer you. Maybe you should see Dr. M or Dr. S yeah. who might have other ideas about how best to manage your case or your son's case. And again, as a rehabilitation physician, that's kind of a core philosophy is that concept of hope and yeah. how important maintaining motivation, engagement, hope is in the context of recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was episode one of two episodes with Dr. Sassler. In the next episode, he'll talk in depth about post-concussion headaches. So if you experience persistent concussion headaches, it will be really valuable to listen to that episode too. He will explain which are the most common headaches and how you can recognize them and more. Now I would love to hear from you. What do you take away from this episode? Is there something that you can apply to your life right away? Head on over to lifejana.com and leave your comment now. And if you want to hear and read more concussion stories, actionable steps and inspiration, be sure to subscribe to the LifeYana email list while you're there so that you never miss out on new materials we constantly make for you. If you want to support this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash concussion stories. Thank you for listening to this Concussion Stories episode by Liveyana. May you be well and may you be happy.